0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Climbing on the Bookshelf. This time I'm talking about Kurt Deimberger. He is, perhaps, the last living link to the early years in the 1950s and 60s, where the first ascents of 8,000 metre peaks were conquered. His book, Summits and Secrets, combines his early years in climbing and mountaineering, foraging the mountainside for crystals in the Alps. He'd often leave his tools there to save weight when carrying the crystals that he'd discovered, and go back the next day and forget where he'd put them. It also chronicles his climbing rise to fame through expeditions to the Alps, Greenland, South America, and later the Greater Ranges. He made two first ascents of the 8,000ers. One was Broad Peak in 1957, with Marcus Schmuck, Fritz Wintersteller, and legendary alpinist Hermann Buell. This was a first ascent of particular note, as it was without oxygen, porters, or base camp support. Shortly after, Marcus Schmuck and Fritz Wintersteller summited Chogolisa. Shortly after that, Kurt Deinberger and Hermann Buhl attempted Chogolisa, but you'll hear about that later on. Then the other 8000er was Dullagiri in 1960, led by Max Iselin. Kurt Deinberger was a member of the team, partnered with Albin Shelbert, Ernst Forer, Nauang Dors Sherpa, and Ningma Dors Sherpa. The book also covers some of his mountaineering in the Alps, where he and his partner Wolfgang Stefan climbed the three hardest north faces, the Eiger, the Matterhorn, and the Grand Jurassic, with the Eiger being only the 13th ascent, but was later demoted to the 15th ascent owing to the recognition of Wiss and Gonda, and the discovery of North Druft and had in fact died on the way down after completing the ascent. There are some amazing photos in the book, one of which is taken looking back across the southeast ridge of Chogolisa, where he and his climbing partner Herman Buell, shortly after summiting Broad Peak, they decided to also climb Chogolisa. They didn't quite make the summit of the mountain due to a storm, and they made a hasty retreat. Now, I've talked about Herman Buell before in a previous episode with Tarquin Cooper. Perhaps if you've not already done so, maybe you should check that out. We cover a lot of climbing books and span a lot of years, mainly the inter- and post-war years. I really enjoyed talking with him on that episode. When we both discussed Herman Buell, we couldn't quite remember where and when he died. I seem to remember saying that he had fallen from a collapsed cornice, but that was about it. It wasn't until I reread Summits and Secrets that it jogged my memory. I'll now read a passage from the book that Kurt Deinberger wrote about the accident. <laughs> Ridge Peak was gradually sinking below and behind us. To the south, the great mountainous banks of cloud were moving very slowly nearer. The sky was calm and of a deep, deep blue. The banner of snow blowing from Ridge Peak seemed to have grown a little. To the north lay a tremendous prospect. All the giants from the Baltoro lined up in a row, a whole chain of peaks 26,000 feet high or only just less. We let our gaze range in wonderment from K2 to Hidden Peak. We took photographs and then moved on again. How quickly the clouds were coming towards us now. We hoped they wouldn't interfere with our view from the top. We quickened our pace. The last steep pitch began a little way up there, and close above it, we could see the tower that was the summit, 1,500 feet at the most. That couldn't take so very long. Presently, a little cloud came climbing up the slope below us. It grew larger, enveloping us, enveloping the peak. Without any warning, all hell broke loose. Grey veils of mist scurried across the ridge. Unnatural darkness swamped us. We fought our way towards the clouds of blown snow, bending double to meet the fury of the gale. On the crest of the ridge, it flung itself upon us in full blast, snatching at our clothes, trying to claw us from our footing. It was terribly cold, and the needles of ice blowing down into our faces hurt savagely. We could only see the next yard or two ahead. We kept on changing the lead, struggling grimly upwards. It didn't seem possible. I thought of the blue sky such a short time back. It had all been so quick. I had an uncanny feeling. Hadn't exactly the same thing happened to the Duke of the Abruzzi, quite close to the summit, we were going to be robbed too. Away with such stupid thoughts. It was only a few hundred feet, and we had got to do it. It grew lighter for a moment as the wind parted the driving clouds. We stood rooted, looking up to where the summit must be. There it was, near enough to touch, looming darkly above us. An instant later, the rack had swallowed it up again. The storm continued its horrific din. Laboriously, we moved up with a steep, bottomless precipice below us, keeping close to the ridge crest. Everything was white now and we could hardly see. We were at about 24,000 feet, only another thousand to the summit tower. Suddenly, Herman spoke. We've got to turn back at once or the wind will cover up our tracks and then we shall stray out on the cornices. He was quite right. hadn't given thought to it and now visibility was almost nil. We should have to hurry. We turned then and there. Herman had been leading, so I was in front now. He followed at a safe distance of 10 to 15 yards, which was all that visibility would permit. Bent double, I felt my way downwards. It was incredible. Only 150 feet down, there was no trace to be seen of our upward trail, except the deep holes made by our axes. Very soon, there wouldn't be very many of them, and still the tempest kept up its infernal din. I reckon we must be at about 23,600 feet, and that we must be near the steep avalanche slope which had pushed us so close to the cornices, if only one could see a bit more. I turned and saw Herman coming after me, keeping the distance, unaltered, following in my actual steps. As I moved down, I kept on looking across to the left, trying to see through the mist. All I could see was that it was getting a bit darker overhead and a bit lighter below. That must be the edges of the cornices. It seemed a safe distance away, but in mist distances can be deceptive. Perhaps it would be better to keep to the right, but then I should have to look out for the precipice. I ought to be here by now. Ah there's another axe hole. I looked anxiously to the left and then down to the surface at my feet. I was at a loss. It was almost impossible to see anything at all. Crack. Something shot through me like a shock. Everything shook and for a second the surface of the snow seemed to shrink. Blindly I jumped sideways to the right, an instantaneous reflex action. Two, three great strides and followed the steep slope downwards a little way shattered by what I'd seen at my feet, the rim of the cornice, with little jagged bits breaking away from it. My luck had been in all right, I'd been clean out on the cornice. What would Herman have to say about that, I wondered. I stopped and turned, but the curve of the slope prevented my seeing over the crest as I looked up. The light was improving a little. Herman must bob up at any moment there, I still couldn't fathom that extraordinary shaking sensation had the snow really settled under my weight. Still no Herman. Herman? I shouted. For God's sake, what's up? Herman! I rushed, gasping up the slope. There it was, the crest, and beyond it, smooth snow, and it was empty. Herman, you, done for. I dragged myself up a little farther. I could see his last footmarks in the snow, then the jagged edge of the broken cornice yawning. Then, the black depths. The broken cornice that had been the quaking beneath my feet then. I couldn't get a sight of the north face from anywhere near, I should have to get down to Ridge Peak for that. As I went down the storm gradually abated and the mists lifted from time to time. I was utterly stunned. How could that have happened just behind me? I had the greatest difficulty in getting up the short rise to Ridge Peak, but even before I got there it had cleared up, I hurried out to the farthest edges of the cliff. The storm was hunting the clouds high into the heavens. Above the veils of mist and through them, a ridge loomed up, a tower, a great roof, a tremendous banners of blown snow streaming from it. Chogalisa the Horrible. I could see the spot where we turned about 24,000 feet. Our trail down the broad snowfield below was crystal clear. Then, that fearsome drop to the north into the clouds. And there, even closer to our tracks, as they ran straight downwards the encroaching precipice. And then, I could see it all with stark and terrible clarity. Just at that point, Herman had left my tracks at a slight bend, where I was hugging the rim of the precipice and gone straight on ahead, only three or four yards, straight out onto the tottering rim of the cornice, straight out into nothingness. Of the foot of the wall I could see nothing. Stupidly, I stared upwards again. If we had been roped. from the sound of that section, about the accident, he must have felt awful about not roping up together. And the 27 hours it took him to return to base camp must have seemed like an eternity. There was an extensive search carried out for Herman Buell, but still to this day he has not been found. The Dullagiri expedition is of particular note again, as it was originally reconnoitred by Morris Herzog and the team that first summited Annapurna I, the first 8,000 metre peak to be summited in 1950, but was rejected by the team as they couldn't see a feasible route and then switched to Annapurna 1. Kurt Dienberger's successful expedition to Dullagiri also had another record, which was and still is the first Himalayan climb supported by the first prototype fixed wing aircraft landing, but eventually crashed during a takeoff in the hidden valley north of the mountain where it was abandoned. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to find out more about Kurt Dienberger, then head over to adventurebooks.com, which is the new website from Vertebrate Publishing, and you can order a copy of Summits and Secrets. Just one more thing about Kurt Dienberger is that on the 16th of March this year, he celebrated his 90th birthday. So we all wish him well and hope he has many more birthdays to come. What a legend. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. If anyone out there can let me know how this helps, then please get in touch. Or if there's any questions you have relating to the show, and I'll try my best to answer them. That's it for now, and I'll catch you next time.